Why is Miami-Dade so bad at recycling? Why does Donald Trump still enjoy strong support here? And why have gangs taken over Ecuador and much of Latin America? Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Padgett. In the next hour, we'll reconsider recycling in Miami-Dade County. We have a big solid waste budget shortfall, and we just aren't very good at recycling, so should we end the program or learn to do it better? We'll also try to understand why political leaders and voters in South Florida remain loyal to Donald Trump, even though he allegedly betrayed America's democracy. And we'll examine the gang violence crisis hanging over Ecuador's election and the Americas. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. Waste management is a crisis topic in Miami-Dade County these days. We've spoken recently on this show about the fact that Miami-Dade is simply running out of landfill and other spaces for all its garbage, especially after a fire earlier this year gutted a waste incinerator plant in Doral that processed about half the trash the county collects. Now, you'd think that given that emergency, recycling our garbage would take on more urgency. Think again. Miami-Dade is starting, or excuse me, staring at a $40 million budget deficit for waste collection. And on top of that, residents here recycle less than a fifth of their garbage. That's one of the lowest levels in the state. And what little we do recycle, we do it wrong. In fact, we have one of Florida's highest recycling contamination rates. Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levinkava is proposing a $3 per month per household increase in solid waste collection fees. But the debate now is over whether we should start learning to recycle right or just scrap recycling altogether. Should we or not keep recycling here? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me in the studio is Dominique Burkhart. She's a senior attorney in Miami at the environmental nonprofit Earth Justice. Also with us is Lorenzo Dates. He supervises solid waste in Charlotte County in southwest Florida, where they seem to get recycling. Welcome to you both. Um, Before we start, I want to read part of a message we just received from the Miami-Dade County Department of Solid Waste Management. They acknowledge that, quote, important changes on how we deal with our waste for the years to come have to be made and that they are, quote, working on a plan that will stand the test of time and that, quote, recycling will be an important tool in our toolbox. More details to come, I guess. So, Dominique Burkhart, let me just start by asking the obvious question here. Why are we in Miami-Dade so comparatively bad at recycling? Hi, Tim. And, you know, thank you for having me. I'm I'm glad to be here. I I mean, there's a lot of different issues here um, in Miami-Dade and how we think about waste and waste management. Certainly, we can talk about the the kind of low-hanging fruit issues, like issues of uh, contamination in recycling and lack of proper education and outreach to residents on how to properly recycle what they should be recycling. But I think if we were to zoom out just a little bit, there's a larger issue here. 
And that's that our county commissioners, our decision makers, when they think about waste, they're doing things the way that it's always been done, which is burying it into the ground, burning trash, and not really recognizing, I think, and being aware and informed about the real importance of programs like recycling and other alternative forms of managing waste and resources aimed at keeping them out of landfills and incinerators to begin with. And that's all part of this concept um, in a growing movement called Zero Waste, where you focus on diverting waste to begin with from burying it into the ground or burning it. And I think that's really what's key here is that this requires valuing these alternative forms of managing waste and inf being informed about it, pursuing it, researching it, and really figuring out what are the ways that we can do this so that we can you know, move away from some of these larger looming issues around our landfill capacity or, or the, the contentious issues around incinerators and should they should we have them? Should they be in a community, which certainly at Earth Justice and, and the, the communities we work with, the groups we work with, we believe that answer is no. Right. So recycling just hasn't been, in your opinion, prioritized enough at, in, in the in the government echelons here in Miami-Dade County, as, as opposed to other, as you point out, more conventional waste management approaches. I, I remember when I moved here almost 25 years ago, the county provided us with two different recycling bins, one for paper, one for the hard stuff like metal cans and glass and plastic containers. But for many years now, we've been given just one recycling bin for everything. Why do you think that is? And, and, and was that the right thing for the county to do? Dominique? Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, there's there's a lot of different issues around recycling and what is the end market for recycling. I, I can't speak exactly to why those policy decisions were made, but I think it speaks to just the the decrease in valuing a program like recycling and just really, again, just doubling down on just the, these these other forms of just kind of just what we've always done, which is landfilling and, and burning trash and not properly prioritizing and growing and nurturing these other ways that we can look at and manage waste and, and again, focusing on diverting uh, that the, the, the waste out of bearing it into the ground and, and and burning it, which, you know, quite frankly, one of the issues too, I, I would imagine costs are a factor that came up at a recent commission meeting when mm -hmm. we, when the commission was debating this waste fee. And certainly, you know, it's, it's important, the, the idea of thinking about constituents and cost of living and inflation, that is certainly an important and valid consideration. But the concern that I have is that our county commissioners, our decision makers are not thinking about all of the other costs at play, the environmental costs, the social costs. When we think about landfills and incinerators, those have documented harms on our environment, on accelerating the climate crisis, the emissions of greenhouse gases and pollutants. Right. We think about the social costs, creating sacrifice zones. And you think about right. which community has to live next to a polluting facility. And, you know, you, you think right. about- Right. And, and that's that's a big issue now in, in Doral, obviously, with whether or not to replace that that burns incinerator facility with, with another one there. Absolutely. Uh, Lorenzo Dates, let me ask the obvious question on your end then. Why is yes, Charlotte County so comparatively good at recycling? I mean, Miami-Dade's recycling contamination rate, meaning people throwing in stuff that shouldn't be thrown in, that, that can't be recycled and messes up the whole batch, that's been as high as 50% here in recent years. And these days, fortunately, it's, it's, it's down to closer to 40. 
your county's recycling contamination rate has been as low as 13 percent. What's the secret? Is, is it better public information campaigns, better civic mindedness? Fill us in. I think it's I think it's a combination of all of the above. And thanks for having me. Um, I think one of the main things that has worked for Charlotte County has been our education program. Whenever we switched, uh, you mentioned having the two different containers. We had the same thing here in Charlotte County, and we went to what we call single stream recycling, which is basically everything goes into one container. Right. And the key when we kicked that off, because many were used to separating it out, and it was actually a cleaner process at the time. But in order to maintain that that uh, um, clean, recyclable material, we had a massive campaign. We went to each uh, gated community and actually offered them the different size carts because some are like uh, manufactured home communities. Some are regular home size. And we let the, the community leaders of those gated communities, for example, select what size carts they wanted. We included them in, in the whole process of transitioning from the uh, multi-stream to a single stream. And I think that was a key. Everybody was happy. The manufactured home facilities had the little small 48-gallon carts, right. which they were very happy with because they're very limited in space. While the other residential units wanted their typical 65 and 96-gallon carts, that's and a that's a pretty de pretty de de pretty detailed approach. On the other it, end, it on the other end of the economic spectrum, though, how do we get lower income communities more actively committed to recycling, especially when, admittedly, it's hard to care about recycling when you've got so many other more pressing concerns when when you're Correct. financially squeezed like that. Right. Well, uh, keep in mind that many of the uh, the manufactured home communities are actually. Um, you know, people that are retired, that are on a, on a, on a limited income. Uh, many poor people also live in, in, in some of these communities where they have, uh, I don't want to call them like trailer parks or manufactured homes. I, I don't know what the correct term is. I don't want to insult anybody. But um, reaching out to all of those and right. the materials that we prepared in advance, every card had a, a pictures uh, with all the items, what exactly goes into the cart, yeah. what does not go into the cart, what is wish recycling, because people were putting like those plastic lawn chairs mm -hmm. into the recycling cart because it's plastic, so they assume it's it's recyclable. Right. So no. I think it was a combination of that. We also did a lot of commercials uh, with our local networks uh, to educate them. And with some of that, we partnered actually with uh, Collier and Lee County because we're in the same market as far as television goes. And we have the same similar programs. So we were able to get more bang for our buck by splitting some of the advertising costs mm -hmm. uh, between three counties rather than okay. just right. Charlotte County alone doing that. Uh -huh. I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about Miami-Dade's recycling crisis. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. So, Dominique, we're hearing from folks like some Miami-Dade County commissioners that you were mentioning before that we should just give up on recycling and throw those resources at more waste incineration and methods like that. Um, is that understandable or is that, from both an environmental and financial standpoint, a mistake? Absolutely the latter, Tim. That is a mistake. And, you know, when we think about 
the the solid waste uh, the the shortfall in the budget incineration is not going to solve that problem it is one of the most expensive if not the most expensive forms of waste management agreed the plans, the, the plans to build a new one would cost 1.2 billion dollars and i can tell you tim miami-dade county doesn't have that money they would have to finance it they would have to go into debt and one of the things that we researched when we were looking at you know, electricity sales from the Dural incinerator is that it doesn't even come close to covering the operating costs, much less getting at that debt. So it's a bad deal for taxpayers. Mm -hmm. It's a bad deal for the environment, for communities, for health. And really that when you think about all of the money and all of the time it would take years down the road to put something like that in place, it, I, I really believe, and I, I, the, the groups we work with, the communities we work with really believe that that would be better spent looking at alternative forms of waste management that other cities and counties around the United States have been successfully mm -hmm. um, able to implement. Now, Lorenzo, Charlotte County, as I understand, is actually considering new protocols for residents who consistently violate recycling guidelines there, correct? The way, yeah. <laughs> obvious, uh, the way obviously so many Miami-Dade County residents do. Is, is any sort of fine or punishment built into that, like loss of uh, recycling privileges, for example? Gotcha. Let me, let me be clear up front that the Solid Waste Division, and we are, we are uh, guided by the, our Board of County Commissioners, and uh, our re recommendation to the board is, is that they allow us to proceed with a three times and you're out program. And we're going to huh. approach this hopefully with a, their approval. And, and we have a pretty good rapport with the board of commissioners. They have a lot of trust in, in our programs because we have been very successful. And that is to take sections of the county that we know are the, the biggest contributors to contamination. And we are going to educate them, one, by providing them more literature, this sort of thing putting stickers on there, giving them a third chance and you're out. However, we are also going to recommend that at the same time, if that resident wants to come back into the recycling world and they want to be a part of it, that we will return their cart. We will give them more one-on-one -on -one education and okay. then go ahead and reissue the cart and just mm -hmm. monitor it for a bit. But okay. keep in mind that uh, we are guided by the uh, Board of County Commissioners. But uh, we are pretty uh, confident that uh, they will go ahead and let us do this program this coming year because we want to get down to where 10 uh, percent or maybe less mm -hmm. because it right. does cost money. Uh, every time you know you were mentioning 40 percent uh, contamination rate. My God. Yeah. Basically, that whole recycling pile is garbage. Right. Well, uh, we have, we, and so we, you're paying to handle that multiple times. Right. Because you can't really recycle it. You take that to a recycling berth, which yes. is a facility where they process it, uh -huh. and they look at that garbage. They're basically going to okay. reload it in the truck and find a place to dump it. Lorenzo, I'd like to take a call from one of our listeners right now. Kay Vaughn here in Miami uh, mentions, makes the point that uh, language can be a barrier uh, that contributes to misunderstanding of recycling. Is that what you're, uh, you're referring to, Kay Vaughn? You're on the air. Yes, I have family members who are educated and they speak perfect English and they don't get the right uh, pile. And I don't, I'm not sure if even I do, but there's a lot of people who don't don't have messaging capabilities in English and don't have the, let's say, the, the custom of doing this as they do in Europe and in other places. And it's a communications and outreach problem. Right. As much as anything else. So more life. more outreach in Spanish and Creole would be it would be a big help, you think? And then? Portuguese. Yeah. And Portuguese, right. 
and everything else, yeah. Okay, well, thank you, Kayvon. I appreciate it. Dominique Burkhardt of Earth Justice, let's take a couple of steps back here and look at the bigger picture about recycling, which is, frankly, getting a lot of criticism worldwide these days. I mean, Miami-Dade obviously isn't the only place experiencing this kind of recycling dysfunction. And to be fair to residents here, recycling can be confusing, if not frustrating, as I think Kayvon was just you know, alluding to. What do you feel are the biggest flaws about recycling itself that need to be fixed to address problems like ours here and to help get pe- more people doing it? So, you know, at a baseline, Tim, I, I think just as I, I mentioned earlier, it, it's going to require the political will, the commitment and valuing the need for recycling, just given where we are um, in, in the climate crisis and in managing our waste and in thinking about community health. On a practical level, I absolutely agree with with Kayvon. You know, at Earth Justice, we work on a lot of language access issues. That is huge in a place like South Florida. There has to be a way for these concepts to be broken down on how to properly recycle, how to not contaminate, what belongs in this bin versus that bin. And it needs to be done in a way that is accessible, where our government is going to communities and actually breaking things down, speaking in the language people can understand, but it, it requires a political will, a, a cultural shift. And it's really our our local government we're looking at to be the mm-hmm. leader in that. They are the ones who should be leading that charge. Right. And, and, and uh, Dominique, just real quickly, would it help if we just eliminated plastic from the equation? That seems to be a real sticking point these days with recycling. You know, I don't think so. I I, I think that it, we can be clear around what plastic can be recycled, whether it's a bottle, whether it's it's packaging, whether you know we we know that it, it it's not a plastic bag. I I think there are definitely ways that right. that can be explained and and in a okay. way that people can can follow and understand. There's there's diverse. Okay places all around the, the country that can do this. I think we okay. can do this here in Miami. And Lorenzo Dates, finally, in just the 30 seconds we have left, just very quickly, what do you think could be fixed about recycling to make it more effective and inviting to people? Very quickly, I think please. I think in your community, the language is a big thing. And I think if you were to take certain areas of your community and, and focus on educating them group by group, you can't do this overnight. I think that is the key. Education. Okay. And also the language is the key. And just so you all know, all the future MRFs are already changing to automation where they will be able to process film plastic Ah. and all those sort of things. So it's actually... Uh, a okay. good idea to keep plastics in the recycling okay. street. Well, well, thank you for that update, Lorenzo. Lorenzo Dates supervises solid waste management in Charlotte County, Florida. Dominique Burkhart is a senior attorney at the environmental nonprofit Earth Justice. Thanks very much to you both. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Still to come, why so many folks in South Florida still support Donald Trump? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. This week, former President Donald Trump was slapped with his fourth indictment. This one is a sprawling criminal conspiracy charge in Fulton County, Georgia. It accuses Trump and an army of co-conspirators of unlawfully attempting to overthrow the 2020 presidential election that he lost. 
like a similar federal indictment earlier this month that alleges that Trump did nothing less than attempt to subvert America's very democracy. And yet, as we know, the indictments have only helped strengthen Trump's wide lead in the Republican polls as he seeks the party's nomination for the 2024 presidential election. That's especially true in Florida, including South Florida. Many in the Cuban and Latino communities remain enthusiastically loyal to Trump. They include Miami Congressman Carlos Jimenez and Miami-Dade County Commissioner Kevin Cabrera. The first Republican primary debate takes place next week, so we wanted to ask why, at least here in South Florida, he still retains so much support. What's your answer to that question? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is Michael Bustamante. He's a professor of Cuban and Cuban-American studies at the University of Miami who follows Latino politics here in South Florida. Thank you for being with us, Michael. Good to be with you, Tim. Before we start, I, I want to say we reached out to Congressman Jimenez and Commissioner Cabrera to hear their viewpoints about President Trump and why they support him. Jimenez did not respond. Cabrera declined. But Commissioner Cabrera's office did send us an email that said he chose not to join us because he feels WLRN has in the past, quote, willfully mischaracterized him and his positions, and that given the history of WLRN's coverage of President Trump and Commissioner Cabrera, neither would get a fair shake on your air. We respectfully disagree, Commissioner, but we respect your opinion, and our invitation is always open. So, Michael Bustamante, let me start with Commissioner Cabrera and Congressman Jimenez, both of whom are Cuban-American, and get to what seems to be the heart of Donald Trump's support here in South Florida, meaning the Cuban community. Why does this appear to be a largely Cuban phenomenon? I mean, is, is it basically because Trump was seen as being tough on communist Cuba when he was president? I think that's part of it, um, Tim. But, you know, this is also not an entirely new story when it comes to the Cuban-American community. I mean, Cuban-Americans have been known to be, um, you know, generally speaking, more likely to be Republican voters than other Latino groups for right. many, many years now. Yeah, good and point. part of that is sort of, sort of deep history. So I think we have to have that that kind of context, right? Um, I think, you know, in, in, a, in a strange way, the, the tough line on Cuba during his administration um, may have helped uh, increase his support among Cuban voters. But I, I don't think it was the only thing. Um, there's something also about Trump um, having connected with a very recent cohort of Cuban migrants, uh, migrants who have come from the 1990s, but even more recently. And those folks, I think, as much as anything else, are often looking to disconnect from a country they see as failed, a country they, they have deep grievances uh, uh, with. Um, there's something about Trump that kind of uh, sort of speaks to this uber Americanness. He is the sort of epitome of a certain version of Americanism that I think um, a lot of uh, recent migrants have been very eager to kind of invest in and associate themselves with. So I, I, in yeah. some respects, I think the Cuba policy stuff was um, a bit uh, a bit of a secondary consideration. No, that's that's a that's a great point, Michael. Congressman Jimenez and and also Miami Congressman Mario Diaz Balart, who's also Cuban American, were among the hundred the one hundred and forty seven members of Congress who voted to block electoral college certification of President Biden's victory back on that infamous day of January sixth, twenty twenty one. It was thought then that politically they had no choice but to do the bidding of their constituencies here. Is that still very much the case uh, for them now? 
you know, I, I don't have evidence that that kind of calculation has changed, um, but I think it is a stunning thing uh, to confront a reality that a, a community that uh, stands up and speaks out so often um, in favor of democracy, um, I think with regard to the the, the former president has uh, at times had a more difficult uh, time practicing those values that that they preach. And I think the response to the January 6th events is, is one example of that. Um, but no doubt um, elected officials are facing uh, you know, they know their constituents uh, better than we do. Right. Um, and yeah. so the sense of sort of turning on Trump uh, might have uh, been a motivator there, whatever those individuals might have felt individually about about uh, the president's behavior. But Cubans are hardly the only support Trump has here. Listen to Spanish language radio hosts here like Carines Moncada and Lourdes Ubieta, and you realize he has strong Venezuelan support and Colombian support, and Brazilian support. I mean, let's remember, President Biden beat Trump in Miami-Dade County by only seven points in 2020, and the main reason was Latino voters. So I guess the better question, Michael, is why does Trump's MAGA message resonate so effectively with Latinos in general here? Well, I think that's a really important point that you make, Tim. This is not only a Cuban story. Um, if If if, as I argued, sort of a, a an association between the Cuban-American community and the Republican Party has a deeper history, we've also seen the kind of profile of the Latino and Hispanic community in Miami diversify a lot in the last couple of decades. And if you look at the numbers, the biggest shifts in sort of voting patterns and opinions um, within kind of national origin group, um, national origin groups was not among Cubans. Uh, some of the biggest jump from 2016 to 2020 occurred with Colombian Americans, for example. Yeah. I mean, a part of that was the Republicans having feet on the ground and actually making a play for voters that the Democrats, uh, unfortunately, from my perspective, sort of left left on yeah, the Yeah, and I and I do later want to get to that question about the, the of the Democratic fail. Yeah, sure. But 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 more broadly speaking, I mean, I think there's a there's definitely um, a, a a kind of a a sentiment of fear of socialism of uh you know people in south florida's hispanic and latino communities are more likely to have very scarring often traumatic experiences with socialist regimes or regimes of the left um and they bring those memories and feelings um with them to this country right uh okay. demography is not is not destiny in that regard but i also have to say i think republicans have been very strategic and ruthless in kind of um, sort of uh, exaggerating the socialist threat or naming as socialism things that don't even really resemble it. <laughs> in, yeah, in no, it, it, it gets gratuitous, obviously. It, it gets gratuitous. I mean, what, what, I, what I like to say is, you know, never in his wild, you know, love him or hate him, never in his wildest dreams did Bernie Sanders, uh, has Bernie Sanders, to my knowledge, proposed, uh, you know, the state becoming the owner of the means of production, right? And so to sort of establish a kind of an equivalence between Bernie Sanders' politics and the politics of Fidel Castro is just, uh, you know, utterly ahistorical, it right. seems to me. But real so, quickly- so, we, so we lose some of that nuance in, in the in the discussion generally. And I think, I think yeah. you know, uh, political actors, um, nuance is not is not a, 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 a sought-after quality often <laughs> in our politics. And, but real quickly, we should point out, though, that Latinos in other parts of the country largely do not support Trump. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that, A, most of the rest of the Latino community in America is largely Mexican-American. And B, it, it has to do with Trump's uh, anti-immigrant uh, uh, postures. Um, so is there a difference there really then between, you know, South Florida Latinos and Latinos in the rest of the country? 
There is, and, and there isn't. I mean, there are definitely very different trajectories if you look at sort of Mexican history, Mexican-American history and the relationship to the U.S. political system uh, and the position of the community on migration, you know, uh, for, for as you mentioned, is, is, is quite different overall. But, you know, I have to say the last election cycle saw Trump uh, make important gains among Latinos across the country in certain sort of pockets. Right. Um, not as dramatically as I think some other Republican side would like to portray it. But, um, you know, Democrats have been caught sleeping at the wheel, um, you know, thinking that uh, the Latinos are sort of naturally going to be bound to vote for them because of um, the uh, sort of in extreme nativist turn in Republican immigration uh, policy and politics. But, you know, Latino voters, um, you know, who are third or fourth generation and aren't necessarily, you know, have such a close proximity to the, the immigrant experience don't necessarily vote on immigration, right? They vote on all kinds of issues. Right. There's a rising yeah. evangelical Latino movement across this country, right? It, yeah. Latinos are not a monolith. I, I'm tired of saying. Oh no, no, all... no, 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 <laughs> no, no. I, I could, and, and, and I, I think I think unfortunately Democrats yeah. have really have really missed the boat on that. Right. We have Marco on the line from Cutler Bay. Uh, he believes that Cuban Americans will vote. Oops, we just lost Marco. Sorry. Um, Michael, my colleague at the Miami Herald, Fabiola Santiago, wrote a column this week asking Congressman Jimenez how he can dare to compare the mounting legal trouble Trump is facing with the kind of political persecution we see democracy advocates suffer back in Latin America. Going back to this point you and I were discussing earlier about, you know, this disconnect uh, between, you know, clamoring for democracy here, but maybe not uh, fully, uh, you know, defending it as much as one would think they should here. Um, C Commissioner Cabrera also makes that that controversial comparison that that, co that Congressman Jimenez makes. Does Fabiola have a point that there's a real disconnect going on here? I mean, from my perspective, there is. But I think what what the 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 argument just to try to take a little bit more of a thirty thousand foot view on this and not get enmeshed in a a, a partisan spat myself. No, no. Um, I I, th I think what this what this speaks to is sort of the the very different information ecosystems in which we as citizens appear to be operating these days. Where you know what appears uh, you know utterly sort of obvious and convincing to someone like Fabiola, and I you know I tend to agree with her point of view on this uh, is sort of completely far to someone on the other side of the aisle. Right. Um, I don't know what the solution there is, but to me, uh, the disconnect is is striking. Um, to me, there's a very good argument. You know, one could make an argument that uh, perhaps about irregularities in the process uh, by which you know some of these indictments have come down on Trump, or a question of whether the Democrats are weaponizing this, this, or that, and the other. Right? There's always room for debate. But um, the idea that that this is not the rule of law or the process of democracy itself or our institutions doing what they're supposed to do, as imperfectly as they sometimes do it, that, to, to compare that uh, to, um, you know, outright assaults on democratic norms, I think is is is, is really is really far. -fetched. Right. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about Donald Trump's significant support, not just in Florida, but in South Florida. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. So, Michael Bustamante, this then raises a delicate question. Do Cubans and other Latino communities here somehow have a different sense of democracy and de democratic institutions? And I ask that knowing full well that Cubans, for example, always demonstrate exemplary voter turnout. And no one admires their voter turn turnout commitment more than I do. But even so, is the Cuban and Latino community's appreciation for democratic norms in this context, this Trump context we're talking about, open to discussion in this regard, or am I being a chauvinistic gringo? 
I think we always have to be um, self-critical in thinking about uh, sort of the, the democratic norms that we preach and how we practice them. And I, th I think that applies across the board. I think if our democratic values are under strain in this country right now, it's not something that's unique to one one group or, or another. Right. We have uh, to we have to point out that Trump's support is largely white and non-Latino. Exactly. Um, but I also think that this raises, a, you know, for me, a, a broader historical point. Um, to be uh, sort of position yourself as anti-communist or anti-socialist um, is not necessarily to be pro-democratic. Um, there's a long history of the Cold War in Latin America and around many parts of the world of folks um, defending, you know, right-leaning authoritarianism in the name of anti-communism, right? And so it is not the same yeah. uh, to be deeply anti-communist or anti-socialist, whether we're talking about policy toward Cuba or whether we're talking about U.S. domestic politics, and actually to live out the values of democracy um, sort of on a day-to-day on -day level. Right, just Those, I think, have often been in tension historically yeah. in Latin America, uh, around the world. And so it's no surprise to me that we see some of those tensions, um, you know, right here in, in our own community. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a great point. We, we need to remember that just because you've escaped dictatorship doesn't necessarily make you a good Democrat. Yeah, ex exactly. Uh, you know, to, to, put, to put a finer point on it. And I think yeah. folks on the right would agree. Um, folks on the right would argue that there are many on the Latin American left that have very real grievances with dictatorships of the right, but have not have been sort of more um, uh, lackadaisical, to put it that way, right. in denouncing, you know, uh, violations of democratic norms when they're committed by governments on the left. That, right. So there's, yeah, right. there's arguably a double standard here that gets applied on both sides of that kind of Cold War divide that we don't seem to ever be able to escape. Now, you and I were starting to discuss before the reality that a big part of the issue here is the remarkable failure of the Democratic Party to engage Florida's Latino community, particularly Florida's uh, South Florida's Latino community. Would we even be talking about this if Biden and the Democrats hadn't lost so much of the Florida Latino vote over this past decade? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a there's a of course, you know, Republicans after the last uh, election cycle were, were going to claim a, a tremendous victory. And, and you know, the, the work that they put in on the ground in South Florida obviously paid off. But I think it's a fair question is what happened to sort of the swing that we saw toward Trump among Latino voters in South Florida more a result of democratic absence or sort of Republican ground game. Um, you know, it's probably a combination of the two. Mm -hmm. So it's a little hard to say, but it's unmistakable. I mean, the Democrats really seeded the field. Now, one can argue, um, you know, the Biden campaign seemed to have uh, determined that Florida really wasn't that crucial to their electoral roadmap. And maybe they were right, right? Uh, yeah. they, they, they won after all. Uh, but of course, uh, for, for, for people who are Democrats in South Florida, that's, you know, a, a tough pill to swallow the idea that, you know, you're, you, you, you somehow don't matter. So, right. you know, I, I think that the, the attempt to engage Hispanic voters have been fumbled. They've been um, late to the game. They haven't had kind of a, 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 comp, a, a sort of a deep ground game. Part of that is the, is the infrastructure of the parties locally, right? When you have a party infrastructure locally on the Republican side that has been, uh, you know, in, in control of so many elected offices for so many years, you've developed a very, very deep bench and the Democrats mm -hmm. just don't have that. Right. But I think there were I, also some real, there's some real, right. uh, some real own goals on the Democratic side right. for sure. Well, we'll have to leave it there, Mike. A lot of realities here to, 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 to take in. Michael Bustamante is a professor of Cuban and Cuban-American studies at the University of Miami. Michael, thanks as always. Thanks, Tim. Good to be with you. Still to come, why Ecuador and much of Latin America are under gang rule. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN.
I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Ecuador is holding a snap presidential election on Sunday, but the vote is being overshadowed by assassinations. Last week, anti-corruption candidate Fernando Villavicencio was brutally murdered by gunmen as he left a campaign rally in Ecuador's capital, Quito. A few weeks ago, hitmen killed the mayor of the port city of Manta. And this week, a leader of the party of the presidential frontrunner was slain in Esmeraldas. All these homicides in Ecuador are believed to have been committed by the violent narco-trafficking gangs that have all but taken over the country. But the fact is, Ecuador is just the latest country that criminal cartels have overrun in Latin America and the Caribbean. Think of Mexico, Honduras, and most of all, Haiti. In Latin America, where the majority of Miami-Dade County's population has family ties, the right wing and the left wing are increasingly being replaced by the gang wing. Do you have any family or friends in places like Ecuador who live with this plague? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me here in the studio is Eduardo Gamarra. He's a professor of politics and international relations at Florida International University, and he's an expert on just this sort of crisis in Latin America. Eduardo, let's start in Ecuador and last week's shocking assassination. You, you and I have long followed Fernando Villavicencio's work as an investigative journalist, but why did the country's narco gangsters murder him as a presidential candidate? Well, uh, Tim, thank you for, for having me. Sure. Um, I think it's, uh, it's important to, to sort of uh, situate the context in, in which this happened. Uh, this is something that has been brewing in Ecuador for at least a half a decade, and uh, in which uh, Ecuador has largely become sort of the, the headquarters of a lot of what is happening in terms of organized crime in Latin America. Right. I mean, a lot yeah. of these gangs in Ecuador, they have strong ties with cartels in Mexico and Colombia. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. With at least two cartels. But you've also got the presence of Italian mafias and, and, and even, and Al even Albania. Albania. Yeah. Right. right. So, yeah. so uh, uh, and, and of course, then the offshoot of all kinds of, of Colombian uh, gangs as well. Not mm -hmm. to mention the fact that Ecuador is very important in terms of money laundering. So, so, um, the violence that we've seen in Ecuador began with prison kinds of, uh, you know, uh, insurrections and murders, right? And right. we began to see that, and nobody really began, nobody paid attention to it until we saw Albanian prisoners in, in jail. But I think what you're facing now is very different because of the penetration of transnational criminal organizations into the political system. Now, we should also mention that the front runner in Ecuador's snap presidential election on Sunday is Luisa Gonzalez, and a leader of her left-leaning Citizen Revolution Party was also assassinated this week. Correct. I know a lot of Ecuadorian expats here in South Florida support another more conservative candidate, Daniel Noboa, Noboa. and just yesterday his campaign caravan was fired on. Right. He fortunately was not hurt, but but really, Eduardo, whoever wins on Sunday, do, do they have any chance of peacefully governing Ecuador? Uh, again, part of the problem in, in Ecuador is has been the incapacity of the political system to deal with any of these crises. Uh, current President Lasso, for example, yeah. came in with an enormous agenda to uh, restructure the economy and restructure politics, his anti-corruption agenda and so on. He was 
unable to govern because he had no majority in, in the legislature. And on top of that, right, in the legislature, in fact, Fernando Villavicencio was himself a legislature right. and was using the legislature as a platform to launch his anti-corruption campaign. So whatever happens on Sunday, more than likely what you're going to have, owing to the structural features of the Ecuadorian political system, we're likely to have a Congress on Monday that's not any different than the Congress that's currently being replaced. Right, but let's, let, let's go back even further. You mentioned a half a decade. I would say go back even right. a decade, back to the presidency of, of Rafael Correa, Correct. a leftist populist who himself was very corrupt, uh, in fact, was convicted in 2020 on, on, on corruption charges having to do with oil contracts. Um, is, is it accurate to, to, to look back at his presidency and say that there, there was he did a lot to degrade Ecuador's not only democratic institutions, but rule of law institutions. And that kind of rot also helps uh, the gangs thrive. Right. Um, you know, President Correa went after some of the probably the oldest kinds of approaches to fighting drugs. He dismantled, for example, the Manta Air Base, the forward operating location Great that, point. The US I'm glad had, you brought that, up. Yeah. that the U.S. had set up there to monitor mm -hmm. the airplanes coming out of the Amazon uh, uh, loaded with cocaine. Right. Uh, he went after the United States uh, in large measure because of their, of their anti-drug uh, 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 strategies. Let's not forget that, uh, that Correa's father, father was himself convicted of drug trafficking. And here. he always held that resentment against the U.S. Exactly. for having arrested his father. Exactly. Yeah. So, so in large measure, there was this dismantling of the efforts that had been ongoing in Ecuador for at least two decades prior to his arrival. Right. And so, so, so all yeah. of that didn't help exactly. at, at all. But the sad reality is that Ecuador is just the latest country in Latin America to fall to what feels like gang rule in this hemisphere. Mexico has been experiencing it for more than a decade now. Haiti is being choked by gangs. Much of Colombia is still under their thumb. And Central America, of course, is largely overrun by gangs known as the Maras. How did so much of the region get to this point, Eduardo, where it's not such an exaggeration anymore to talk about gang governance in yeah. Latin America? Well, again, going back to Fernando Villavicencio, Fernando used to always warn us about this, right? Right. And a lot of people dismissed his criticisms as saying he was too exaggerated, right? But the reality is that over the last two decades, at least, uh, organized crime, uh, in partnership with some of these populist leaderships, not only Correa, but Evo Morales in Bolivia right. and, and Hugo Chavez and Maduro in have essentially partnered with organized crime. They've essentially allowed organized crime to penetrate and to essentially make these states into narco states, right? Yeah. And by that I mean states where narcotics organizations essentially form part of the government, form part of the police forces, form part yeah. of the military and so on. And so the, the way in which this has, con uh, has begun to, to really mesh throughout the hemisphere largely means that the hemisphere as a whole now has a what you're 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 warning right we're we're not talking about left or right anymore we're talking about the real threat of organized gangs running the show right. and, and in Haiti for example you've yeah. got you've got uh, il, the the political elite so many of them actually sponsoring gangs as sort of their street enforcers right. the political elite and the business elite and the business elite right, right. so right. 
And, and that, by the way, while Haiti is an extreme case, right, you might say that uh, we've got this in more countries than, than uh, we really ever expected. Right. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the crisis of gang rule in Ecuador and Latin America. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. So, Eduardo, what, what's the answer to this plague? On, on the one hand, we, you know, we've been talking about the need for democratic rule of law institutions. But you and I also talk a lot about how the U.S. has really not done enough in Latin America to help build those institutions. We, we tell Latin America, just adopt free markets and free elections, and those institutions will take care of themselves, which isn't true. What does the U.S. have to do more of to help the region fend off this, as I called it before, this plague? Right. Tim, for the last two decades, uh, Latin America has not been a priority. I mean, you can maybe even say, has, has Latin America ever really been yeah, a priority for Washington? But certainly over the last two decades, it hasn't. This has left an enormous vacuum that has been filled by two forces. On the one hand, China, okay? Yeah. And on the other, organized crime, okay? Yeah. And that's what we're seeing now, that combination, which I think leads to a very, very important uh, question. What should the U.S. do in this context other than take Latin America seriously and look at Latin America as a strategic area, a partnership area in the context of this global crisis that we're living. But I think the only possibility of solving these issues in the region is with greater strategic presence of the United States and more democracy, not less democracy. Yeah. Because the options that are being thrown about are, in fact, authoritarian. Exactly. That's, and that's the, exactly right. the point I just wanted to move to here is that a lot of Latin Americans are saying, look, we, we tried your democratic experiment. It really didn't work out. We want to, we want to go back to the, the caudillos, the strongmen now. Perhaps the biggest example being uh, Nayib Bukele, the president of El Salvador. And a lot of people, including conservatives in this country, are saying that's the solution to the gang problem. His, his crusade to eradicate the gangs that have really <laughs> essentially ruled yeah. El Salvador for so many years by essentially throwing a large swath of his population in jail. Yeah. Tim, I always say that in Latin America, our first option has been authoritarianism. The mm. left has tried uh, Chavez, Morales, those kinds of people, Ortega. Right. And the right has also had its versions of authoritarianism. And Bukele, in, in large measure, is the last version. Uh, he's been successful in terms right. of controlling the crime. But over the long term, sustaining that effort in a democratic way is very difficult. Right. And he's become the preferred model. He's been discussed in Argentina in the context of the elections there. He's been discussed certainly in Ecuador. There are at least two candidates who have, who've talked about a Bukele kind of solution. Right. To, it's, yeah. One of them is Topich, right? Topich, right. What, what do you think he's offering? And do you think that what's ha this violence is actually going to uh, enhance his, his chances on Sunday? Well, as, uh, as, uh, as many, many of you you know, you know, Topich is a, is a former French Legion uh, right, member of the French Legion. very militaristic right, pr presidential right, candidate. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and he talks about himself as the Ecuadorian Bukele, right? And he, mm -hmm. and he basically proposes, although he said, you know, but I'll be the Bukele, but I'll respect human rights, right? Yeah. So he's making that, that caveat. 
But the reality is that the Bukele solution to Ecuador is largely unfeasible because of the presence of Albanians, because of the presence right. of all of these different organized criminal elements. But doesn't this create a vicious cycle, too? I mean, you mentioned that the answer is not less democracy, but more democracy. And as leaders like Bukele keep taking these, these uh, uh, you know, sort of, as we call them, mano dura or iron-fisted approach, right. that in and of itself weakens the, the the rule of law. I mean, right. in I mean, it looks like rule of law, but it's really not because it's degrading rule of law institutions in the country. And that does that just yeah. in the long run help the gangs? Uh, it does because there's a real contradiction in the way in which these individuals approach this. Uh, Bukele is now synonymous with El Salvador. The institutions of democracy are largely subject to his whims. Right, sort of the, sort of shell, right. sidelined. And yeah. so the problem with populism generally, left or right, is that, that institutions mm -hmm. disappear. And so, you know, uh, are we talking about a similar approach in Ecuador, right? I think whatever, if it's a topic or what have you. Although, again, they'll have all these institutional constraints in Congress and so on. Right. But it's very difficult to influ implement yeah. something of that nature. Very difficult. Eduardo Gamara is a professor of politics and international relations at Florida International University. Eduardo, many thanks as always. Thank you. Finally on the roundup, school started yesterday in Miami-Dade County. And amid all the educational politics and culture war issues we've been discussing lately, WLRN's Kate Payne reminds us this is about the students, the kids. Students at American High School in Hialeah had a soundtrack for their first day of school. Walking through the gate, Adrian Emily was feeling a lot of things. Excited, nervous, scared, happy. It's his first day of ninth grade. I mean, it's big, but I had family who came here before, so not that nervous. Inside, school superintendent Jose Dotres was checking on cafeteria workers, teachers, and students. Good morning, everybody. Is everybody happy to be back in school? <laughs> Come on, let's try that again. Is everybody happy to be back in school? Oh, yeah. Oh, see, I got a C over here, C. Stephen Papp is the principal here. Last year was like the first real school year we had since you know, the whole pandemic started. And then this year, I think it's going to be even better. After years of COVID disruptions, Pap says he's hoping for some normalcy. I'm Kate Payne in Hialeah. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Amy Sanchez with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of live original programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateus Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news, the vice president of radio, and our show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Padgett. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Gracias. Merci. Obrigado. WLRN Public Media.